Miss Nichelle Nichols, just put your money where your mouth is, your energy. And this is Sci-Fi Saturday Night. It's uh, it's sort of an international marvelous uh, party for everybody. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You think me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Hey, everybody. This is The Dome, and welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tonight on episode 419, something we rarely, if ever, do, a whole clip show. Our first clip is an interview with a guest we met at Plastic City Comic Con, Barbara Friedlander. Barbara works for DC Comics. Actually, she worked for DC Comics in the 60s. She wrote several stories for their romance titles and worked as an editor and actually worked on comics other than the romance titles. But Barbara talked with us about her time at DC, which she left in the late 60s. Barbara's fairly new to the whole convention circuit and was an absolute joy to spend a few moments with. Here's what she had to say. We are in Fitchburg at Plastic City Comic Con, and I am with one of the more interesting people I've ever had the chance to talk to from DC Comics, from the Silver Age of Comics, Barbara Friedlander. Barbara, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm very honored to do this. I have been a relic for for comic books, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk about my my time period when I was at DC. Of the many things you you could call yourself, I don't think Relic is one of them. <laughs> but we were we were talking beforehand, and I was showing Barbara the the book from my collection, and she asked the question, "Do you know why the checkerboard is on the front of the comic?" And the answer is, "It's there because of Saul Harrison." Do you know who Saul Harrison was? I do not. Okay, Saul Harrison was the head of production. I think he then became a president when DC Comics had the big revolution and moved over to Warner Brothers. However, he wanted to have the comic book show. He wanted to be able to distinguish that this was a DC comic. So our comic books had this checkerboard so that you could distinguish it when it was on the rolling card or it was on the newsstand, and that's why that checkerboard is there. It's not in every comic book, but it was there for quite a while. So in the 60s, when you started, yeah. how difficult was it for a woman in comics? It was not the best thing for a woman in comics. I was surrounded by very strong-minded men. Comic books were a man's field. They created Batman, they created Superman, and it was all men. And so when uh, Jack Miller uh, 
asked me, and Erwin Donenfeld asked me to be an associate editor and an editor, there was a lot of, I got a lot of flack. People were not happy that I was there because they, they felt that this was their genre and I didn't belong there. And I spent a lot of time trying to prove myself. But you brought a whole different perspective and a whole opened up, literally opened up a whole new genre. So what was that like for you to give DC this whole new opening? It was an incredible time for being a woman because there was no you too, Me Too movement. There was no backing up. It was just starting then. And I was surrounded by men, and the men made me feel, many times, not everybody, but there were certain men that made me feel like, what are you doing here, little girl? You don't belong here. And I, would, I wanted to use certain artists, and I, because I liked the, their artwork. I liked the way they created a mood, a romance, and uh, the artists were angry at me because I didn't want to use them. Now, in the early days, I noticed that when you were credited as being a writer, you were credited as B. Freelander, without using your first name. That I didn't know. In fact, this is one of them. And um, it wasn't until later on in 62, 63, that your name became much more prominent. I honestly did not know that. As a matter of fact, I didn't know a lot about any of this until I Googled myself. I, you know, Googling myself, I suddenly found out who I was. It's a scary thing, isn't it? Yes, it it is. And I was fascinated by who I, I really was. And it dawned on me then that I really was ahead of my time. You absolutely were ahead of your time. And, I mean, you know, some, some of the things that, you know, you wrote about in all these different titles and all these different stories was obviously a product of its time. But it was a product of its time from the perspective of a woman, which was completely different than anything that had been seen before. When did you stop writing for comics? I stopped I. I stopped writing around 69, 68, 69. I resigned and I, because I wanted to get married and have children, and I did not really believe I could do both. I wanted to be my husband's wife and have dinner parties. I didn't realize how important I could, I, that life could be for a woman. You were one thing or another. Very few women at the time, although they began, were both. They had a career. And let's face it, women had to have careers because they had children to raise. They needed the, the money. They needed uh, education for their children, food for the tables. I didn't realize how important women really, really were, and they were the backbone of families. When you look around comics now, both in terms of writers and in terms of artists, women hold a much stronger percentage of the people involved than they ever did in the past. And you have to realize 
that you're kind of the the the, the, the headstone, the footstone of that. You're one of the first people to break that barrier. How does that make you feel now, looking back at it? It makes me feel incredibly proud. It really does, because I never in my whole life realized the essence of what I had done until I Googled myself. And when I realized I was the first woman to do that, I was. I was proud. And I felt that I had a story that I wanted to tell people, women, children. I wanted them to feel good about themselves, strong about themselves, and be creative in any way possible because you have it I, I didn't know I had this in me because it was people were creating things at DC Comics all the time and they were doing characters and stories and when I did this it wasn't the most you know people said to me oh okay you know it, it wasn't a superhero he didn't have a cape he didn't have a mask. He didn't have an ego problem. <laughs> so it was a different character. But I I am now very proud about it. I'm very happy to tell my grandchildren. To every young woman who's watching and listening right now, who's thinking about the doodles that they're making or the art that they want to create or the stories that they want to write, what do you have to say to them? I say to them, keep it up, baby. Keep it up. Do what you can. You have a lot in you. Don't let anyone put you down. Find what you're good at. Find what you love. And pursue it. Just keep pursuing your dream. And be realistic to know that you have to have something to fall back on. But just keep your dream alive. That's what I say to women. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's my honor to do this. I'm happy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our second clip tonight is from our friend Colby Elliott, the man behind Last Word Audio, and the guy who did many audio books, including the audio version of My Peculiar Family. Colby's newest audiobook is called The Mad Scientist's Cabinet of Curated Chimera. Say that quickly three times. And is an anthology of some very cool sci-fi stories. Colby will be on our next episode, so we wanted to give the audience a little taste of the book, now available on Audible. So here we go. Last Word Audio presents an unabridged recording of... The Mad Scientist's Cabinet of Curated Chimeras, a collection of classic science fiction, read for you by Colby Elliott. Welcome to the laboratory. Come in, come in. 
Find some place to sit. Preferably without the bubbling beaker or open flame. I have for you eight selections of mad science, astonishing tales, and world domination. Just try not to break anything. We wouldn't want any of my projects getting out now, would we? In our first tale, Tex has a small gambling problem. But when he runs afoul of the Guild of Extraordinary Human Beings, things become a bit more complex in card trick. Card trick by Walter Bupp. The game was stud. There were seven at the table, which makes for good poker. Outside of Nick, who banked the game, nobody looked familiar. They all had the beat look of compulsive gamblers, fogged over by their individual attempts at a poker face. They were a cagey-looking lot. Only one of them was within ten years of my age. Just in case, gamblers, the young one said. I looked up from stacking the chips I had just bought from Nick. The speaker was a skinny little guy with a sharp chin and more freckles than I'd like to have. If any one of you guys has any psi powers, the sharp-chinned gambler said sourly, you better beat it. All gamblers here will recoup double their losses from any snake we catch using psi powers to beat the odds. He shot a hard-eyed look around a room not yet dimmed by cigar smoke. I got the most baleful glare, I thought. He didn't need to worry. I'd been certified normal by an expert that very evening. The expert was Dr. Sherry King, whom I had taken to dinner before joining the game at Nick's. It had gotten to be a sort of weekly date, although this night had given signs of being the last one. For a while that spring, deoxyribonucleic acid had begun to take second place in my heart. This is a pitiful admission for a biochemist to make. DNA should be the cornerstone of his life. But Sherry was something rare, a gorgeous woman, if somewhat distant, who was thoroughly intelligent. She had already earned her doctorate, while I was still struggling with the tag ends of my thesis. Poker? Tex? Sherry had asked when the waitress was bringing dessert. Is this becoming a problem? You've played every night this week. No problem, Sherry, I said. I'm winning, and I see no point in not pocketing all that found money. Compulsive gambling is a sickness, she said, looking at me thoughtfully. She was wearing a shirtwaist and skirt that had the bright colors and fullness you associate with peasant dress. The only sick thing about me is my bank account. I grinned, relishing her dark, romantic quality. I need the dough, Sherry. I've got a thesis to finish if I ever want to get a job teaching. Her thick eyebrows fluttered upward, a danger signal I had learned to look for. That's a childish rationalization, Tex, she said with a lot more sharpness than I had expected. There are certainly other ways to get money. So I'm not as smart as you, I told her. Smart? She didn't think I was tracking. I wasn't as shrewd as you were in picking my parents, I said. Mine never had much and left me less than that when they died. She threw her spoon to the table. I'll remind you of how silly these remarks sound after you've hit a losing streak, she told me. I laughed at that one. I don't lose, Sherry, I said, and I don't intend to. 
Her lashes veiled her violet eyes as she smiled and said more quietly, Then you are in even worse trouble than I thought. I hear a lot about what happens to these strange people who never lose at cards or at dice or at roulette. Aren't you afraid of winding up in the gutter with your throat slit? Isn't that what happens to people with psi powers who gamble? She insisted. What's your trick, Tex? Do you stack the deck with telekinesis? Or does precognition tell you what's about to be dealt? That crack isn't considered very funny in Texas. I growled. Is it any more silly for me to think you might be a psi personality than for you to think you never lose at cards? She nailed me. I could feel my face getting red. Damn it, I started. Nobody talks to a friend like that. Pretty convincing proof, Sherry said tartly. Of what? Of the fact that you aren't making any sense about this gambling kick you're on, Tex. You should have laughed my teasing off. Who would seriously suggest that you were a psi personality? She demanded. And most of all, with my background in psi, do you think I could be misled about it? I shrugged, trying to cool down. Sherry's doctorate had been earned with a startling thesis on psi phenomena and psi personalities, and she had stayed on at Columbia as a research fellow in the field. In egghead circles, she rated as a psi expert all right. Guess not, I said, trying to kill the subject. She wasn't going to let it die. I don't think you're a psi, Tex. You're a normal. The way she said it, it didn't sound like a compliment. Worse than that, she insisted. You're beginning to act like a compulsive gambler. She took a deep breath and let me have the clincher. I could never marry a gambler, Tex. You've never been asked, I reminded her. She had the last word. Let's go, she snapped. Angry as I was about her acting as though I were a snake, I wished I could have thrown her certification that I was a normal in the freckled face of the sharp-chinned gambler at Nick's later that night. After Sherry's needling, I didn't take very kindly to his popping off with the law of the pack. It's understood wherever people gamble that size aren't welcome. Nick didn't like it any better than I did. All right, Lefty, he said to the sharp-chinned gambler. Calm down, huh, kid? What kind of game do you think I run, huh? I didn't let the sour start spoil my game. I was lucky right from the start and hit big in several hands. Lefty, the gambler who had yelped about psi powers at the game, dealt the tenth hand. He gave me the eight of spades in the hole. By the fourth card, I had three other spades showing, which gave me four-fifths of a rare flush in stud poker. But by the fourth card, Lefty had given himself a pair of jacks. That drove all the other gamblers to cover. Lefty raised, of course, and it cost me five hundred bucks to see my fifth card. It was a classic kind of standoff in stud, and the waiter stopped with his tray of drinks to press in among the other kibitzers and watch the payoff. Lefty shucked out the last two cards carelessly, as if they didn't really matter. His own fifth card made no difference. His jacks already had a busted flush beaten. His smile was just a little too sharp as he tossed me my last card face up and reached for the pot with the same left-handed gesture. I took the poker panatella out of my teeth. All blue, I said, turning up my whole card with the other hand. Lefty threw the unused part of the deck to the center of the table. That does it, you snake, he swore at me. It took a second for his accusation to sink in. I started across the table after him. If they hadn't stopped me, 
I would have torn his lying throat out. Funny, but there were kibitzers on my shoulders before I could rise an inch out of my chair. Down in Texas, you could get shot for a crack like that, Lefty, I said. I guess I really yelled it. And in New York, you can, and probably will, get your rotten throat slit for a trick like the one you just pulled, he replied. He turned to the other gamblers, most of whom had their hands on the edge of the table, ready to jump to their feet if it got any rougher. I stacked the deck this last deal, he said coolly. He held a palm up at their surprised mutter. Texas' fifth card was stacked to be a heart, gamblers. You saw him get a spade and take the pot. I won't sit at the same table with a guy that can do that. Telekinesis has no place in poker. Pretty near as bad as stacked decks, one of the gamblers rasped. But the others weren't with him. I only had to take one look at Nick's face. I stood up slowly, and the hands on my shoulders didn't hold me down any longer. Lefty says he stacked the deck, I told them. I say he lies. You know there's nothing to choose between our statements. Lefty is a cheap grandstander, and I'll settle with him myself. Nick, I won't embarrass you tonight. This isn't your fault. But I'll be here tomorrow night, and you had better be glad to see me. Sure, Tex, he said uncomfortably, rising with me. Take my seat, Shorty, he directed one of the kibitzers. He walked around to grab me by the elbow and steer me as far away from Lefty's truculent face as he could. At least the sharp-chinned little rat had quit the game, too. Both of us had left our chips on the table. Nick wanted me to leave. Pay me off, I insisted. He said yes a lot quicker than I thought he would. The other gamblers could have squawked that my chips should go into the next pot, but apparently none of them did. Lefty sidled out as Nick was paying me off. Wait outside for me, I said to him. Why not, he said, sticking his chin out at me and walking out. Nick grabbed me again. Don't get hot, Tex, he warned me. I don't want a killing on my own sidewalk. Take it someplace else, huh, kid? Sure, I said. There wasn't any danger Lefty would hang around. Bob was big enough to break him in two, which is exactly what I planned if I caught up with him. It had been dark for some hours by the time I hit the street and waved for a skimcopter. Nick's games start late. You asked me to wait, somebody said. I spun around and saw Lefty standing in the alleyway beside the building. I went for him, charging hard. He scuttled back into the alley, out of what little light there was that far downtown. Just as I reached for him, somebody slugged me in the gut. I went down on a knee, gasping. I hadn't seen his sidekick. The alley was pretty dark. I heard Lefty's breath suck in sharply as I came up out of my crouch, diving for him. After all, it was only pain. Something inside my head. It wasn't as though I'd been really crippled. My fingers clawed at his jacket and would have held him. But the other guy grabbed my ankle and threw me down on the slippery cobbles again. I came up slower that time. I'd bunged up my kneecap more than I wanted to think about. Lefty was still out of reach. I called him a name that was always good for a fight in Texas, and started after him, but slower than before. I wasn't fast enough to avoid the hard thing that rammed against my spine. Even down in Texas, a gun in the back freezes you up. Lefty was all guts now that I was hung up on the gun barrel. It might as well have been a meat hook. I warned you not to use Cy in the game, he snapped. 
Now you'll have to talk to Pete. One of us isn't going to live through this, I promised him, starting to reach for his throat. The gun jabbed a reminder to watch my manners. Do you come quietly? Lefty asked shrilly. Or do we... The sudden shrillness of his voice scared me more than anything else. He was worked up worse than I was. Quietly, I conceded, trying to get some saliva to flow again. The pressure against my spine eased off. Lefty stepped out of the alley to the curb and flagged down a cruising copter. He made me get in first, which gave me a chance to turn when I sat down and see who had been holding the gun on me from behind. The gunman had sure drifted in one awful hurry. There wasn't a soul except Lefty around. He hopped in after me. The turbine howled as the driver gunned us up on the air cushion and sent us skimming away. The trip lasted only four or five minutes through the thinning traffic of late evening. We pulled up in front of a brownstone house in the upper 80s that reared up four stories among a string of three-story neighbors. I limped to the top of the steps after Lefty. He let us in with a key. We were in a dimly lit hall that had a staircase against the left wall and an open door at its right, leading into a darkened room. A tall, skinny girl was sitting about a third of the way up the carpeted flight of steps. Her face was drawn out to a point by a long, thin nose. Here they are, she called up the stairway, showing braces on her teeth. She stood up and came down the hall. She was clad in a shorty wrapper that showed off her racehorse legs. Billy Joe, she said to Lefty. I told them you were coming. Hi, Fiola, he said. Good for you. He sounded pleased. There were steps above, and two others joined us. First came a short, square man with gray hair and bushy gray eyebrows. He was wrapped up in a flannel robe that had once been maroon, and was now rusty with age and wear. It only served to confirm that he had just been yanked out of bed. He hadn't bothered to put anything on his bare feet or to comb his hair. A pretty wild-looking old man. Behind him stumped the chunky woman, crowding fifty. She was in a worse state of shovel. She hadn't quite made it to bed and was still in her slip. Her stockings had been unhitched from her garters and hung in slack transparency around her fat calves, like the sloughed-off skin of a snake. I told you, Fiola said to the gray-haired man. It's nice that you're right once in a while, he said in a scratchy, sleepy voice, walking past her to switch on the ceiling light of the room on the right side of the hall. She didn't like that. Lefty stopped her reply. Will it be PC? He asked her. No, she said. You missed that one, Lefty said. Didn't either. Well, sit in with us and see, he suggested. What for? She asked. I know what's going to happen in there. You'll be along to bed right soon, darling Billy. He looked over at me. Go on in, Tex, he said. Darling Billy, I sneered. Don't pay any attention to her, he said. She's in another space-time continuum. I pointedly ogled the girl's pretty legs going up the stairs and whistled softly. My wife, he said, blushing. A powerful PC, or one day will be. You're kidding, I said. His arm on my elbow pushed me into the lighted room. It had been the front parlor of the old brownstone in its prime, and was now fixed up as an office. The place held an executive desk with several buttons and enough other controls to put it in orbit. There was a number of cushioned straight-back chairs and a comfortable leather couch under the window. 
Only the fact that it was getting on toward midnight made me willing to believe that the couple who had walked down the stairs expected to be taken seriously. This is George Robertson, the poker whiz, Lefty said briefly to the two sleepyheads. They call him Tex. Tex, this is Peter Maragon, Grand Master of the Lodge. The gray-haired man gave me a tired nod. I imagine you're a pretty angry young man, Mr. Robertson, he said in his scratchy voice. I started to tell him quite a little about how I felt, but he held up his hand. I've had a hard day, he complained, and I got out of bed solely to adjudicate your case. Now, this will go a lot more quickly if you listen. He smacked his lips a couple of times as if he wondered where he had left his partial plate. I hoped he had swallowed it. Sit down, sit down, he said irritably, pointing at the chair across the desk from him. I debated it, but took the chair, grinding my teeth. You aren't stupid, or you wouldn't be a scientist, he said, revealing that he knew a lot more about me than I did about him. Let's start out with a couple facts. He pointed a gnarled finger at Lefty. Wally Bupp stacked the deck of cards on you tonight, he said gruffly. What you don't know is that he stacked them with telekinesis. He's a TK. A snake, I gasped. Watch your lip, Maragon croaked. Everybody in this room is a sigh. Snake is a dirty word around here, Mr. Robertson. Mr. Bupp has a special aversion to it. What's the purpose? I began hotly. Huh, Maragon barked. A good word. He cackled a laugh at me. Purpose? Exactly, Mr. Robertson. Well, the Lodge has a purpose, and you'll act a lot more sensibly if you know it. You, he said to me, are a TK. You, I yelled right back, are a liar. He ignored me completely. We can't afford to have you gambling and cheating normals, he went on. One of the Lodge's fundamental rules is that no Psy may use his powers to the detriment of normals. Lefty's big scene at Nick's fixed it so you won't be welcome in a big-time poker game anywhere in town. We did that deliberately, and we're telling you to quit gambling, as of this minute. You say you are a TK, I interrupted. Somewhat, he said. I have psi powers, but I'm not mainly a TK. Whatever your powers are, I said, they don't make you Superman immune from the laws of libel. If you or anybody I can catch breathes one false word about my being a snake, you'll be on the receiving end of the roughest lawsuit you ever heard of. The silliness of that statement will occur to you in a while, he said dryly. And truth is a defense against a claim of libel. But to get back to purpose. Our second purpose tonight is to get it through your thick head, Mr. Robertson, that the Lodge insists on its right to control your actions, insofar as they involve the use of your psi powers. We mean business, Mr. Robertson, and before you are through with our heartless Mr. Bupp tonight, you'll know it. That's all that's behind our little charade. He came to a stop and took a deep breath. I'm going to make one statement and rest on it, I said, trying to keep my voice calm and level. He shrugged. Your turn, he said. I'm a normal, I said. I flatly deny that I have the slightest shred of psi power. I accuse that freckled snake over there of lying deliberately. I'll make him pay for it, and he'll be lucky if it isn't with his blood. That's all? Isn't it enough? 
He laughed harshly and grinned over at Lefty. Some of you maverick size scream like a gelded porker, he said. I figured you'd tell me we'd cost you a fortune in prospective poker winnings, to say the least. My stomach dropped. I hadn't thought of that. Not as much as I should have. It was my only income. Something a darn sight more important than money is involved, I said. Maybe you aren't such a bad guy, he decided. He looked over at the woman standing silently in her slip beside his desk, her bare arms folded over her ample bosom. How about it, Millie? he asked her. She shrugged. He believes what he says, she told him. He honestly doesn't think he has any psi powers. That mitigates the affair, Maragon said. Still, our purpose demands an object lesson. I have to find you, Mr. Robertson. You've broken one of our rules by using TK to stack a poker deck. Because you weren't aware of it, though, half of your fine will be remitted if you join the lodge within a week. Accordingly, I assess you... Uh, how much, Millie? He asked. He's got 8,000 and some in his breast pocket, she said with fiendish accuracy. Every penny he has in the world. Assess you $8,000, Maragon concluded. He got wearily to his feet and started to pad past me toward the door. Mr. Bupp will collect, he said. The woman followed him, her hose hanging down around her ankles, and climbed the stairs stolidly behind him. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Keen Comic Con, Plastic City Comic Con, BooksandBooze.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Be sure to visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. If you're looking for a really, really good gift book for the rapidly approaching St. Swithin's Day, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon, and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is now available on Audible. I'm not really sure where else you could possibly look for it. Our intro production is provided by Rob Watts. His amazing stuff can be found on robwattsonline.com. Check out the Watts sauce. Trust me on this one. Our outro music is provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their grooves are at lawrencemademecry.com. A big hello to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the cast who helped make this possible tonight from the Peabody Time Tunnel, Kriana and Zombrarian. Thank you both very, very much for all you do. This is Dome saying Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. We'll talk soon, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. I keep getting these spam emails for weed control, but they're never what I expect them to be. Good night, everyone, unless it's daytime. That sounds perfect.